Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. I'm Nathan Cole. I'm Akiko Tawamoto. And last time we came at you, uh, the world was a very different place. Needless to say, we've taken quite a long break, but we're uh, we're happy to be back talking with each other and talking to you. Uh, yeah, even though things have changed quite a bit, you had we were just trying to come up with what our last episode had been, and we were talking conductors. You know, how important is a conductor? Do we really need a conductor? And uh, and who knew we wouldn't need a conductor for. For months. Yeah. <laughs> we got our wish. <laughs> Didn't see any conductors for months. And uh, yeah, it's like the monkey's paw. We <laughs> got, got more than we bargained for. Yeah, that, the corpse showed up at the front door. So, yeah, I mean, we, we certainly won't be the first people sharing our thoughts about, you know, the changed state of the world and classical music since the pandemic began. So, you know, maybe maybe our thoughts don't have to run too deep, but... What do you think about uh, our musical and our artistic lives since this all took root? When was the last time we were at work? It was what, March 12th or 13th, yeah. something like that, yeah. Mid-March. And we were, it was a, uh, a week full of children's programs, right? That's children's right. or young adult programs. And we were kind of, our big challenges that week were keeping all the, the books straight, you know, got this book for this program and transferring Boeings in and out of this part and that part and, and just I think there were three different concert masters playing the same solo. That's so that was a right. challenge tune. Was one I of was, them you? I was sitting next to all of them, I think. Oh okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was not one of them. But yeah, I was trying to make myself useful. I, I do remember stressing about a solo and yeah, it's one of those weird like when you're a kid, you know, some assignment is due and you pray for a snow day or some fake disaster call the next day that would spare you from having to go in. And here now you got like a snow year. So yeah, unfortunately. Well, I mean, we really who knew that that would be the last day there. And I really haven't been back at the hall. Um, I know you haven't. Yeah. And you know, I'm sure it won't come as a surprise that for the next couple weeks, as it started to sink in. I mean, I. I'm not sure that I took the violin much out of the case. I had been practicing a, a lot actually right up until that moment and it came to a screeching halt and then I just didn't want to play at all. Yeah, it was strange. I had somehow injured myself. I think we'd been doing a lot of like the Ives and Dvorak programs on the regular subscription concerts and like I I was doing, uh, I forget why, I sort of felt like I was susceptible and I... Maybe I wasn't doing enough individual practice and I was like playing kind of maybe kind of without paying super, super close attention to my technique. Well, you know, it was that point in the season too where athletes always have that point in a basketball season right around March, April. Right. Everyone's got something going on. Yeah. Dings. And I think we have that too. I, I often notice by March or April, it's just, it's just been a lot of weeks in a row and the little things start adding up and... And we had extra stuff too that we we were playing some kind of yeah. extra concerts and yeah, I had, I don't know. Well, yeah. I mean, and you know, of course we're getting, we, I'm getting older and... Well, I, I think I am too. I guess we're all getting older, <laughs> but it's becoming more significant and you know, and that, um, yeah, I'm just starting to notice a little more wear and tear. So, so that was happening then for me, maybe not so much for you, but yeah, I... I immediately just did not play for for two weeks because my wrist really hurt, my right wrist. So, I have to be careful not to say that I was grateful to have a little time to recover because, you know, it's been such a horrible, horrible thing that's, that's happened to everybody in the entire world, which is, you know, it's crazy. Nobody wants to say that somehow there were silver linings, but, you know. Well, me too. I, I thought, okay, uh, it's been kind of a pain to do all this practicing. Now, I'm going to appreciate a few days off, maybe. Yeah, I guess we didn't, we also didn't know what the scope of it was going to be so much. So, um, there's that. Yeah. And then, you know, at first it was like, hey, you know, we can hang out with our kids more and yeah, just sort of appreciate life getting slow, like really slow. But, you know, eventually we did feel the urge to 
feel a little bit normal, I think. And then we picked up our instruments again. And I fortunately at that point had recovered from that problem. And then another problem came up from, <laughs> from practicing. But, you know, we'll get into that. Yeah. Well, what, what's the first thing you remember playing again after? I mean, was it was it about two weeks? That's That's what I remember. It was about two weeks. And then I think at that point, it was starting to become obvious that it was going to be long. I think it was going to be at least a couple of months away from from work. So then I, the LA Phil wanted people to be able to see, you know, LA Phil people playing. And so they put out a call for some videos. And I thought, I mean, I think you took a little convincing, but I, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to take advantage of having two violinists in the same house and, and, and doing some cool violin duo repertoire. And it's a lot of that is very technical. So I thought that might be a nice chance for me to work on a side of my playing that I am usually really not confident about, which is sort of just fun technical playing. I mean, it's just not, it hasn't, hasn't really been my thing. But you know, I did so it's been in the back of my mind that I've wanted to do some duo stuff with you. And it just felt almost like a little opportunity to finally do that. Yeah, it really was. And I, so that made me get the violin back out and try to brush those things up. And yeah, you were alluding to the fact that we both sort of seemed to re-injure ourselves a little bit. I think we were we're very enthusiastic about playing that Vinyowski. Oh, it's so silly. Like I, well, it just goes to show you, like I, I don't think of myself as a very technical player. And then the first time I try to really work up something technical, then I, then I injure myself, you know, it's like, great. I guess I was right. Well, and so neither of us seems to be <laughs> permanently hurt, but I think we were just, yeah, we were, we were sore for a little bit. Um, I so, think if you pair that with like my sad attempts at home fitness, <laughs> I think home that violin created home, home physical fitness combined with home violent fitness. And that was, that was kind of a, a potent formula for injuring myself. Well, almost every time I have gotten hurt, I think it's, it has always been a combination of doing something physical that I'm not quite used to and then a lot of playing at the same time. So, yeah, like the, so one time we were moving and so you were lifting a lot of heavy stuff and moving it around and you were practicing a bunch of, or yeah, you were working up like a, like a solo recital. So it was right. all like Paganini and stuff. And then you were out of work for like two months. That's the only time I've really missed an extended stretch of work. But yeah, it's always like that. And you know, during this time, everybody's routine is different, right? So, we're seeing a lot more of the kids. I'm picking up the kids more, playing with things a lot closer to the ground. I feel like my back has gotten weird from time to time. Oh, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time like at a 90 degree angle. Picking like, up Legos. Bent in half, just like picking things up. And you know, they always say, oh, you should make your kids do it. And it's like, you know what? It's just so exhausting telling them to and then like the job that they do is not their own so just easier just up. to do it yourself yeah, if i don't want to step on a lego then you know i better pick it up myself so. well i have to say it felt great to do that Vanyaski. i mean first of all it was really fun to play it with you we should say what it was that we played these the is it opus 18 I can't. Uh, <laughs> anyway, it's the set of etude caprices, and there are eight of them, eight of them or ten of them, but a few that seem to be more famous than the rest. So we did a couple of the the better known ones. There's a really fast one, number four in A minor that we did, and and then we did also number two that's in E flat. And uh, yeah, it was just it was really fun to play those with you and. Nice once the, you know, because the idea was not just to audio record, but to get a video as well. Right. Yeah. Which is tricky for a number <laughs> of reasons. Cause like, I don't know what I'd rather, I mean, like in the audio, then, you know, you're really focusing on the sound cause you don't have a picture, but then the picture I was a little freaked out about because first of all, speaking of home fitness, <laughs> so yeah, it hasn't been happening as much as I might hope and, uh, yeah, so I just I felt like I was going to surprise people with how how like w much weight I'd gained or something. I don't, I don't <laughs> anyway, you look any different at so, all. So, yeah, I'm all these like little weird insecurities about the video and you know, I was glad that we did it and I won't look at it cuz I don't want to I still haven't watched it. Oh, that's right. Well, yeah. You, yeah, you never watch and I had to watch it. I mean, it was a pleasure, but anytime you're 
watching and listening to your own playing, there's a lot of pain too. So, you yeah, know, I had to watch that like 20 times to uh, put the shots together and yeah. by that, you know, you hear one of your out of tune notes, you hear it once and it's, you know, it sort of pains you. But when you have to listen to it 25 times in a row to get a shot cut just right, <laughs> <laughs> it's like even the stuff that's in tune starts sounding wrong to you. Oh, terrible. You just have to finish finish the job and yeah, hit I'm upload. Yeah, I'm not going to be watching that anytime soon. Well, you sounded great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to take your word for it. You know, and then I, but then I kind of felt like it would be fun to record other stuff. So, it, you know, there's there's more violin duos maybe we'd think about, you know, maybe yeah. less, less technical ones. There's, you know, there's the Leclerc ones that are really pretty or and then but then you know part of me is like dying to and this is something that's happened during you know you notice so many things about you're playing in this situation because you're finally playing by yourself a lot all only basically you know and we always complain about that how an orchestra oh i can never hear myself i don't now yeah. and then some you, you know do. that's kind of amazing I, I was reading something in the new york times about how there was a joke among Broadway performers that they were all going to come back and really get like well rested and in good shape. Oh yeah, you know. And I was like, yeah, you could say the same thing about us. I mean, everyone is practicing a ton at home, you know, which is kind of incredible. Not not to say that we don't normally, but you know, it is easy to get caught up in the everyday of playing, you know, an ensemble, and then to be able to on a really regular basis reacquaint yourself with your own playing is is kind of amazing. It's gone somewhat in streaks too, right? I mean, there have been stretches where you or I or both of us have played a lot and then other weeks where we're, you know, it's a little more slack because you don't want to, f- <laughs> there was that time when nobody was playing right in the beginning and then all of a sudden it seemed like everyone had all this energy and everyone was putting up all these videos and content and then you're oh, like, right. oh, I've got to, now I've got to practice all the time and then- Yeah, they gave me the courage to make a video because people were like, there are so many videos right now that no one will even see yours. And I was <laughs> like, that's that's what I need to hear. Thank you. And then, the, you know, you, you sort of mentally, you have a backlash to that. Like, this is silly. I, I'm not just, I'm not going to practice and play stuff just because everybody is and everybody expects it. And so, it's like this rapid back and forth pendulum- yeah, you know, but I mean, the fact is that we have to keep up our playing. And- yeah, because there's always that fear if if you don't, will it come back when you need it? Yeah, and you know, like I said, I am getting older and it, I think I've had some lucky escapes where like I didn't play <laughs> in the past, you know, didn't play for a while and I came back, yeah, it's still there. But uh, still one of these it. days I'm going to come back and it won't still be there. So, that's, you know. Yeah. I'm going to guess that day's far in the future for you. <laughs> Never know. Well, what else have what else have we been doing musically since then? I mean, I, I've had a number of of my own online projects. It was I, I think right after or right around the same time that we were playing Vinyowski and it was good that I had to <laughs> get in good shape for that because I decided to do some Bach and you know, that's not original because so many people have played and recorded and streamed Bach and all that. You know, I wanted to do it from a teaching standpoint primarily. So, I called the series Bach on the Road. So, basically every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for six weeks got on live on Facebook and YouTube and every week looked at a different sonata or partita. So, in the six weeks did all of them. I didn't do a complete performance of every movement. I, I think for at least three or four of the pieces I, I eventually played, did complete playthroughs of the movements. But the main thing was to take people through them and common pitfalls and how to prepare and all that. So, all that's on YouTube if you want to check out Bach on the Road. And the the sort of silly idea with that was I was imagining that Bach, I call it that because I imagined that Bach secretly toured the world with these compositions and played them himself even though we far as we know, he never even left Germany. So, every using my uh, fantastic green screen technology, I was in a different city and so managed to go all the way around the globe over the course of the 18 sessions. So, it's, it's amazing. It is. It's certainly amazingly weird. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, People were like, where are you in Azerbaijan cool. right now? I mean like, yeah, I mean nobody 
Nobody wants to watch something that's already been done many times. So. Yeah, well, it, it was an it was a really fun crowd actually because they were real Bach on the road regulars, and it, it was nice to spend time with them. Some great questions and discussion and all that, especially about tuning, because that's I mean that's one of the hardest things. Well, in general, about playing the violin, but especially when you got all those double stops and chords in yeah. the Bach. Remember my story about how I chose my one Bach movement for my audition? No. It had to be something without a ton of double stops. I mean, with a lot, without a lot of chords and also without a lot of fast notes. So, what movement was it? <laughs> it didn't leave a lot of options. So, I went with the, you know, the slow movement of C major sonata. Oh, yeah. That's so beautiful, though. I mean, of course, it's beautiful. But, yeah, it was, just, it was amazing to me that you were out there in you know, the garage recording this. Because, yeah, I mean, that just takes a lot of confidence and technique that's not not easy at all. So, but yeah, I, you know, and I would love to, because, so I, I think in the pandemic, I think we're, or me, I personally, I'm really focusing on repertoire that I don't normally do. And Bach is definitely one of those things because, you know, you can play it by yourself and to have a amazing, fulfilling musical experience on your own. It's a nice reminder, you know, you don't have to be in an orchestra to, to make great music. So. Yeah. That has been a great reminder and, uh, you know, also a reminder of just how great that music is. And I suppose you probably won't find too many people to disagree that Bach is great. But even, you know, you mentioned Leclerc. We were reading some duos by Ludwig Spohr and those were really fun. They are, yeah. And, uh, you know, whether that's something we'll record that or the Leclerc, you know, we'll have to see. But uh, it's a big bonus to have two violins in the house. I mean, I think the only thing that could match that would be, you know, a solo instrument and piano. Yeah, that would be awesome. But um, two violins, yeah, I feel lucky. It's not everybody that can record with, you know, not just podcasts, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was nice. I feel like if you're listening regularly to us and that's, you know, it's it's nice to finally have, uh, you have tons of recordings out there that people can watch, listen to. And so, you know, I feel glad that I have something little out there to to pull up to oh. on YouTube. Yeah, that's people people love watching and listening to you. Yeah, I mean, your voice is one thing, but your violence. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I can't Never. decide which annoys people more, my voice or my playing. So, I, I make sure to put Come plenty of both <laughs> out there. Um, yeah, I, I think... Uh, it would be nice to to do a little bit more of that. Yeah. Well, okay, let's do it. I'm saying it publicly. All right. We're going to do it. Here. Now, actually, the main focus of today's episode is going to be to answer a lot of listener questions or as many as we can get to. And in fact, we thought that would be a great way to spend the next few episodes because I've been spending some quality time with a lot of folks online in various programs that I'm running and... There are a lot of questions that uh, I just can't get to in the depth that that I would like to. So, um, we were going to do some of that today. Did you have some more thoughts about just uh, our current situation before we get to those? No, I think, you know, just talking about the kind of repertoire we've been able to do and what we've been doing. You know, I, I think sometimes people will come up and be like, what have you, what have you been doing? And this like tone of voice that implies there's not that much to do and... Yeah, oh, right. You mean because the orchestra is in play? Yeah, and it always amazes me because it's like you know my kids are <laughs> at home, so it's been it's been nice being with the kids and reading and like everybody else, we've been cooking and baking. <laughs> right, we've been fighting along with everyone else to get flour and right yeast and yeah, that's a little bit easier now maybe, but that was kind of crazy for a while. Yeah, first few trips to the store because I mean we we do a fair amount of cooking under normal circumstances anyway. So, you know, we're in the grocery store every couple of days and ooh, those first couple of times were uh, a shock. Yeah. I remember the trip to Trader Joe's right before this all just shut down and there were tons of us just the the line went all the way back to the back of the store. Yeah. You know, and I, I hated myself for becoming one of those people. I started throwing random things into my car. It came Not just home. the JoJo's, but the... And I don't know. I, <laughs> I didn't get the JoJo's. What was I thinking? I should have gotten the JoJo's. But I don't know, like frozen vegetables. I don't know, things we don't normally 
get. I we just people were just taking and putting in their right. It's funny. I don't know. The human reaction to crisis is, you know. Well, that's like the time that you, uh, in Chicago, you went to the famous running of the brides. Oh. What was the name of that bridal shop? What? No, it was Filene's Basement. It Fi- was Filene's Basement. But yeah. is that what they called it? The running of the brides? I think. So, you had to show up at 6 a.m. Well, that was when the doors opened, I think. Okay. So, or you no, had maybe to show up. Maybe they opened at like 7. You did, Yeah. So, I showed up at 6 and it was already like a line around the block. And the point of it was it was like a once a year yeah. clearance sale on wedding dresses. So, you could was get like, it? you know, there's stories about somebody getting like a $5,000 wedding dress for like $200 or something. Okay. But you said the way people did it. So, they worked in groups or if you were If you were serious even. about it, you had to bring a team. And so, you said people would just grab a handful of whatever yeah was closest at hand and then they would kind of sit on their their bounty and then they would trade because it with was other... valuable for trading yeah okay so it didn't matter if it wasn't your size you just right had people members of your team like there would be a member of your team that would help you find your size but the rest of the members of your team would be just snatching whatever they could so that they could okay you know it was pretty crazy it, did, it didn't the... do the female members of the human race a lot of credit. <laughs> yeah, luckily the food situation didn't didn't get to that. Well, maybe, you know, maybe the online videos are going to get like that too, you know, fighting over who gets to record the Chacon. I was thinking that because I wanted to record Chacon and I was like, geez, like what if I get it all ready to go, you know? It's already been hoarded. And then the, the day I send it in, like it's already, it goes up with, you know, somebody else on it. No. Well, feel terrible. <laughs> There's room room for everybody. There's recording. <laughs> my rendition of it is certainly not going to take any space away from yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you uh, ready and willing to get to some listener questions? Yeah, I love questions. Yeah, and the first few of these. So, where these come from? Because the the other major project after Bach on the Road was done, um, I decided to do something called the Violympics and that has just pretty much just started actually. We're in the third week of a 12-week Violympic Games but a few weeks before that I did what the trials. So, instead of the Olympic trials, these were the Violympic trials and I wrote a little piece that everyone was going to have to learn if they were going to participate. They had to learn this little dinky piece in five days and, and actually record it. And every one of those five days, I was going to be show up live and help people through it. So, at the end of that, we had a a kind of a wrap party and just spent some time kind of going over what we learned and I took some questions then but then there were many more questions in the chat that I couldn't possibly get to. So, um, these are some of those with, with names attached when I have names and my thought is that as we put out more episodes, we can just get to more of those questions because they're, they're such good ones and they're for me and for you. Mm-hmm. So, Darlene actually asked, how are you staying motivated right now with the LA Phil not performing? And I, I think, you know, you've already touched on that quite a bit. But let, you know, let's say worst comes to worst and, and the LA Phil doesn't perform for months and months and months or the rest of this calendar year. How are we going to stay motivated? Yeah, that'll be a tough one. I mean, and this thing has changed on every level so quickly from day to day and month to month. You know, like we said at the beginning, oh, this is but just between us, a nice little break. And then it became like, okay, well, this is going to be more than that and better start doing something. And um, so, I think, you know, the answer right now is kind of like, well, I guess we'll keep trying to record things together, play things together and stay in shape on our own. I think that's the best motivation. I mean, I think it is scary to think of coming back together. Like I I think we've all changed. I think it's going to be such a substantial amount of time that we all will have changed in, in a lot of ways, you know? So, yeah, that'll be the challenge. Yeah. Do you think um, fear is at all a motivation? I mean, you were mentioning this before too, like if I don't keep <laughs> improving or Yeah, working, I mean part of me thinks happen. like everyone's at home practicing, you know, their asses off. Like <laughs> I gotta keep up, you know. 
everyone's getting better and here I am picking up Legos, you know, get to it. <laughs> well, and is that, I mean, it's not just to compete, right? I mean, there's a pride as well. You know, you, you want to feel like, well, for better or worse, I mean, our whole lives, I think so much of our self-worth is wrapped up in how we play and I don't know that that's healthy or right, but it's it's inescapable yeah. anyway and just since it's always been a part of who we are, it, it's hard to let go of that. Yeah, it is. But it is reassuring to know that orchestra or no orchestra, we're still musicians. Yeah, that that has been a great reminder. And I hope that that stays even when we do come back together. It's maybe everybody has a little bit more that awareness that, hey, you know, we're we're not just cogs in the machine, but but each of us has our own voice and maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe using that voice will actually enhance the group. The group this, sound. Is, this is probably the longest we've, I mean, other than maternity leave for me, I suppose. But I mean, we haven't played in an orchestra in our, like our lives, right? Since oh, we started yeah, playing. Definitely. Yeah. It's crazy. I would say for ever since I was maybe 10 years old. Yeah. So, that's really weird. I mean, yeah, that first time back will be strange whenever that happens and whatever the piece is, I'm sure I'll always remember what it is. Oh, it'll be like Beethoven 9 or something. Well, yeah. <laughs> start taking bets. <laughs> right. It's got to be Ode to Joy. Here's an interesting question. Uh, I don't have a, a name for who asked this, but and this could be a tough one. Advice for pre-professional musicians who are between graduation and a career now that there are no public concerts or auditions. I mean, wow, can you imagine if that was your last year in music school and it basically uh, ended yeah. in March and now that's it. I mean, if that had been me, my last year at Curtis, I would not have been able to take the audition in May that gave me my first job and I wouldn't have at that point, you know, I was thinking, I don't want to do more school. I just want to get out there and play. Right. Um, would I have kept trying to live in Philly? Would I have moved back home to Kentucky? I really have no idea. I'm sure you'd be at home. I mean, where else would you go? You have to. Right. And then what? I mean, I, I might have, you know, I might have been able to keep taking lessons with my old teacher, Dan Mason, which would have been a good thing. Um, yeah. I might have found myself with... Maybe it would have been like awesome. Maybe like your whole life would have been better. Yeah, I, you know. <laughs> it, like it, I personally, you know, I always think that I, uh, well, I missed out on kind of a chunk of learning years, you know, and have that imposter syndrome thing going on because I, I went to grad school and I had this great teacher, but I felt like, you know, basically at that point I was like, I'm going to get an orchestra job. And so, the actual business of becoming a stronger musician wasn't really the main point. So, you know, I mean, let's just say theoretically that that could have, that could have been the time when that would happen. You know, I would, maybe what I'm doing now in a much earlier form where you're trying to identify, you know, you have, you have to think about the one thing you have now, which is time and to identify the things that you wish you were different about your playing for me now, that's, I wish I were just more technically confident, you know, I wish I could just get up there and knock out a, even just, I would say a Paganini Caprice, but not even that. I wish I could just get up and knock out a, a movement of solo Bach, you know, like something fast, you know, or challenging and just do it with confidence and with just, just feeling like it was like old hat. So, you're saying the fact that there are no performances or auditions now, just take that, look only at the good side of that and say, okay, I'm out of public view for a little bit. I could reinvent. Yeah. I mean, I think most of us have something that we wish we could add to our portfolio. And, you know, it sucks that there's not more options for what to do, but that I think is a huge thing to to become more confident as a player? Like, is there anything better? I don't think. Well, and the, you know, you, I was just reading an article which makes a lot of sense. I mean, it was about a business, but basically saying that, you know, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of companies won't survive this time or won't survive in their current form. But 
the ones that have the means and the resources to actually invest during this time that it will pay off really big and it's not all companies that we would maybe wish to get bigger and more successful but companies like Apple and Facebook, you know, they're they're buying up assets left and right in the hopes that when this is done, they'll be in a better position and, you know, for those players who can basically make that investment of time and work now, it will pay off. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I say that it, it is not everybody who, who's going to have the luxury of just being able to use this time for personal development. So, I don't mean to sound glib or callous, like, you know, everyone should just sit at home practicing, or, you know. Right. No, I mean, that's not what we do. Um, right. I think we've had our times of doing that and our times of picking up the house and cooking and whatnot, but. Yeah, you'd be surprised a little time picking up the house takes. <laughs> You're casting an eye around right now. <laughs> not because it's so immaculate in here. No, I think that's great advice. And just to, to turn it a little bit in a more specific direction, Simon had asked, for someone who wants, who knows they want to become a professional in an orchestra, which qualities, um, now I, I think this refers more to personal qualities, which qualities are the most important and would set you up for long-term success in an orchestral career? Personal qualities, you think? We could branch out to playing qualities too, but this seemed like more like how to succeed in the job rather than how to win a job. Right. I mean, obviously, to be someone with a, a positive outlook in general is pretty invaluable, I think. I think the people who have the hardest time are, are those people who don't have that naturally. Yeah, that's a good point because I, I don't know how it seems from the outside um, if it seems like um, <laughs> it's always fun to play in an orchestra. I mean, if you've been listening to our show for a while, you know, we try to give the, the, the unvarnished view and you, you know that it's not all peaches and cream and so. and sunshine. Um, <laughs> I think the other thing, I think is that you, um, if you see the job as a means to an end, that end being security. And that's ironic. I'm saying that now because <laughs> for the least secure time orchestras but i think if you if you're just happy that you, you know what you're getting out of it you know you're, you're going to have stability you're going to know what you're doing a year from now <laughs> all the things <laughs> Again, we don't things know we right don't now, have yeah. right now um but i think that you know you don't if you don't look deeper into it than that that sounds bad in some ways or if you know well, if you realize that you're gonna find your satisfaction in a lot of ways and it, you know, and you don't expect to find all your satisfaction at your workplace. Right. No, I mean, that's a good. That's well, probably it's probably for any profession, you know. Yeah, professions and also, I mean, I remember people giving that advice about marriage and kids. Sure. Too. It's like you can't. Or just your relationship with anybody. Like you just, you know, the more you expect from people or things like the least, the less satisfied I think you're going to be. So, we're wow, really turning us into the meaning of life here. but um. I think you would have to tell yourself that that's going to have to be the way it is because I think that least happy people are the ones who keep thinking that maybe the job is going to surprise them. <laughs> you just have to tell yourself there's very few surprises and that's good and bad. Yeah. I mean, the musical surprises may be the best of all. Like, you know, the only way to play Mahler 5 is if you're playing in a big orchestra. I, I don't mean that it has to be a a full-time professional orchestra, but, you know, that's an experience that you can't just conjure up for yourself. You know, it has to be in that context. So, that's if you like doing that all the time, then that's the reason to try to join an orchestra. And I think, yeah, if you if you tell yourself the satisfactions will sometimes be on that level, like you'll take them home with you and it won't be necessarily something that other people are going to notice. You know, you're just going to know it yourself. Right. So, that kind of person would be happiest, I think. Someone who's generally optimistic, realistic expectations, and just gets a lot of personal satisfaction from playing. Maybe or, or someone who decides that their entire worth is going to be wrapped up in the fact that they're a member of whatever orchestra. That's true. <laughs> if, you, if you can if just you're decide you're so that. happy to be in an orchestra that that happens 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's just that's just enough for you. You're just so glad to. And I think that's how it. most of us start, right? I mean, yeah. that's how I, I just figured like, wow, I'm a member of this great team now, and that's like, what's going to be better than that? And why would I ever want more? And surprise, I wanted more. <laughs> and that happens too, you know. Um, but so I think that's setting yourself up for long-term happiness if you can do all those things. Yeah. Well, here's another good one. This is turning it more toward some of the projects that we've done during this time. Um, You'll like this one. How does one silence the little voice in one's head that keeps pointing out the mistakes while trying to record? While trying to record. I mean, we we could maybe extend that to say while performing too. That's harder. It's weird. Um, While performing, you know, we talk about this all the time and you have like an actual system to silence that voice. Really? What is it? Because I seem to have forgotten. No, I mean, uh, so it's, you know, it doesn't go back to your, when you first read the inner game of golf, right? Well, yeah. I mean, where he kind of breaks it down into two, two people, self one and self two. Right. And I, I think I even, so I've been reading, you know, this, this Trotsky biography and like kind of pestering you with these (laughs) <laughs> little points about Bolshevism and Menshevism. And, and meanwhile, I can't even sort, you know, self one from self two in the inner game of golf. So, I'm, I think maybe Trotsky may be a little bit beyond me. But yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. The little voice is a huge problem, especially for someone who works like me. And I think we've talked about this before, like my my style of playing and working, my my style of practicing is extremely criticism-based. So, <laughs> <laughs> I don't actually have a system. I just play something and I go, that sounds terrible or that sounds okay or I think I'd do better. You know, it's like a whole, but it's like this very emotional <laughs> setup I have for myself. So, it's it's so easy to just, you know, like today, like I had a bad day practicing. I was like, ah, you know, do I know why? No, not really. Like, do I have, you know, it's like, I just think, yeah, I just felt bad and nothing sounded good. And I mean, you have those days too, but you are much more like systematic about it. And, you know, when I worked with Noah Kageyama, who helped coach me for auditions and stuff, he had, you know, we talked about the the voice that you have trouble silencing. And like one of his things is to, you have to keep your mind occupied so that you're, the little voice doesn't have time to drown out. Mm. You know, and so you keep your mind occupied on something non-judgmental, mm-hmm. basically, right? Yeah. Again, you know, since I can't even handle clearly recollecting his advice, I'm not sure that no, the particulars of the Russian Revolution are, are you know, <laughs> destined to stay in my brain. But um, it, it's something like that. It's like you have to keep you have to keep focused on something constructive in order to silence the. The useless voice, because when you're the problem is, of course, when you're practicing, that voice serves a function, and then when you're performing, it's not useful because you can't fix anything. It's done once right. it's out there, so that voice becomes one hundred percent not useful. Um, yeah. Whereas in your practice room, it was like super useful. So yeah, I mean that's that's something you have to work on. Although recording, I have to say my limited experience, you know, when we did the video, I was surprised I was not more critical. Was it just the awareness of, you know, look, we, you get to do this a few times and just having that pressure of you get a take two or a take whatever, did that really take the pressure off for you? It did. And I found that I was enjoying myself. Like I didn't have to worry the things that I normally worry about in performance, yeah, like not being able to stop or I think the not being able to stop is a big one in a, in a performance, a live performance. Hmm. And that is completely taken away in a recording, especially we're not talking about, we're, we're not in a recording studio. There's not a bunch of engineers. You're not wasting their time. This is kind of the ideal setup because we've got home recording stuff. It's true. We don't have all day because we've got kids, we've got other things to do. But, <laughs> but you know, the fact is, I'm not wasting anybody's time. So, and I think that that made the recording lower pressure than you know, obviously than the performance. Yeah, well, that, I mean that that's great, and you know, 
certainly uh, Glenn Gould, I mean, for him, it was night and day. He just simply stopped performing in front of people because right. it was such a completely different experience. I guess I don't, it's different. I might still prefer performing in front of people. I guess because I know there's no take two, like whatever happens, happens and that's just, you know, that's that. And Yeah, and I experienced a little bit of that, you know, in a very small way. So, we recorded it and then we played it on somebody's porch. Right. You know, a couple uh, weeks a week later. A week or two later. And we really, we didn't practice it in the interim. We just sort of let it sit there. And yeah, we're on someone's porch, so no big deal, you know. But it was, I, I felt that. I felt it was fun. Like, I, I didn't have to worry if there was a scratch on something yeah. we were playing. It was just like, I'm going to just go for this. You know, the spirit will come across and the actual details are going to be forgotten it'll just be people remember that it was fun or whatever so i i get what you're saying there's you know the impression is what matters in the performance not the not the excruciating little details and i think to the original question i mean if if you're talking about it sounds like during this time we're talking about self-recording home recording and and that is just uh, i wish i could remember who i was talking to recently who's had a lot of experience recording commercial Albums. Oh, it was Gil Shaham. Sorry, <laughs> just just some guy. That guy. No, and he was really reminding me. He he said with the way that a recording comes out, you know, a CD. When you're talking about the highest standards, and obviously Gil Shaham can play at those highest standards and all that. But even so, he was saying the final product really is an equal collaboration between the performer and the engineer, the people making the disc making the recording and we're we're human we're going to make mistakes and those professional CDs come with a lot of professional support so again it's not to say that he could slack off and and not do his homework and all that but it's a completely different animal if you're trying to record yourself and keep all the plates spinning yourself um you just it's kind of foolhardy to think that you're going to get perfection because it takes a team to dot all those I's and cross all those T's. So, you know, you have to be patient with yourself, allow for some human human error, I think. Yeah. Get comfortable, do whatever you had to do, you know, and that's the, the beauty of being at home. You can be standing there wearing, you know, your favorite fuzzy socks while you record as long as your ankles aren't showing you. Yeah. Let's have one more that applies, you know, to this time and then also to a more sort of normal work time. And then I think we've got a bunch of rapid fire sort of violin type questions. Free association. (laughs) This one is how do you, and this is interestingly phrased, how do you protect your relationship, your joy with your uh, violin playing from the pressure of doing it for a living? Uh, That's a really good question. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have a name with that question but yeah it's a tough one because it's true i mean what what you're asking i think is you know at what point does the the pressure the the grind of the job <laughs> make it seem like eh, this just isn't fun anymore like i don't care how good the music is <laughs> i can't see these people anymore i think it's you know it's less that than waking up one day and realizing I haven't chosen what I wanted to play in like as long as I can remember, you know? I mean, I think if Mm -hmm. you're every week, if you're somehow lucky enough to be just playing repertoire you love, you know, that's, you feel great. You know, I think there's a lot of exhilaration that goes with that. I think that if you're, you realize after a while, I think probably everybody, when they do this job for long enough, you go, you know what, like I miss playing this or that. Like how come, you know, I I, I don't feel like I'm, you know, using my, my skills enough playing X or Y, you know. And enough of that, I think, starts to erode the joy of playing, you know. Erode to joy. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that, and this, everybody says this, you have to have projects of your own choosing because I think that the disappearance of free will is what ultimately will really destroy 
joy, you know, so free will in whatever form that takes as a, as a player. I think that's probably pretty essential. Yeah, I was, uh, we're in agreement. I was going to say the same thing, those outside projects. I mean, everybody says it's, it's such a cliche. I mean, like, and I think when I first started working, I was like, hey, make sure, you know, you're, you're going to have to make sure you do a lot of chamber music because that's how you'll stave off dissatisfaction. <laughs> right. Yeah, I you remember know, hearing like, that. Yeah. I was like, yeah, 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 I play chamber music. I know. And then you don't realize you take it for granted. You're like, well, you may well, go Well, I mean, but it has years. to be chamber music with people that you really love playing with. And that's very tricky. You know, because if you just say yes to everything that comes your way, that's not going to, you know, spark joy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's the not going to Marie Kondo your, your musical life or anything. You know, you need to be with like people you really respect and trust. And the, uh, that's a rare thing, even for people who are full-time chamber musicians, to right. find those people. And because that that's really not, uh, I mean, just to, to talk specifically about orchestra, you know, the same skills that are essential in a full-time professional chamber group are not the same skills necessary to to be successful full-time in an orchestra year after year after year. And if all of the chamber music you're playing is with other members in your orchestra, your first priority really is to preserve that professional relationship in the orchestra because that that's what you're going to have year after year. So, what that means is if you're in a string quartet, for one week or two weeks with people in the orchestra, it's not really wise to get in a bunch of shouting matches about retards in a Beethoven quartet. Well, that's never really become an issue, right? I mean, I don't remember ever getting in a... Well, because I think you and you and I tend oh, to look at the job in a similar way, but I mean... in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> no names. But right. yeah, no, because it, it's so easy to happen. You know, you're playing a piece that you love and you, you you don't want to give up your ideas and then it's like, oh, wait, once this Beethoven quartet's done, I'm, I'm going to have to sit with this person for 20 more years and we're right. not going to have any choice about how we play things. We're just going to have to agree on how to turn pages and who gets how much space in front of the stand. <laughs> right. And since you, fortunately, you're my favorite violinist to play chamber music with, I won't ask you if it works the other way, but... um. <laughs> Absolutely. And you have uh, all kinds of holds over me. So, Right. So, you have to say that. But yeah, so we have to think not only should we knock in an argument about, <laughs> about this, you know, dynamic because cause I'm going to sit next to this person at work. It's like I'm also going to sleep next to this person at night. So, yep. so you know, that, that's complicated, but it's a long answer to the question. I mean, I think projects oh. of your own choosing, whatever that means, exercising your ability to choose what you want to play. And, um, and you know, chamber music doesn't always mean that because sometimes people just come to you and you didn't choose that piece. But, you know, the thing is maybe it, there's so much great music out there. And so, new music too, if that's your, if, if you just love new music, then make sure that you get out there and you're doing that. You know, otherwise, I think, like I said, eventually, if you're the kind of person who starts to chafe at being told what to do, because that is most of an orchestral music, musician's life is being told what to do. That sounds terrible in some ways and I don't mean it in a bad way, but... That's reality. You know, yeah. If you balance that with deciding what you want to do, then I think that will preserve some semblance of joy in your life. Yeah. That's a great way to think of it. And also, here's a note, sorry. Sub, sub answer. I think your friendships, you know, that sounds cheesy. I think... You're not just playing with people you respect in the orchestra. I think you're you're spending time with them, and that's certainly for us been a huge part of being happy. You know, at work is just looking around, knowing there are like-minded people sitting near you, and then it can be as simple as just being able to make eye contact with someone across the stage because you know they're thinking what you're thinking. You know, and I have that so much. You know, with. Johnny, I'll just say it's with Johnny, you know, our friend who has been on the podcast, who, yeah. you know, often sits across from us in the second violins and, um, and just looking over at him and, you know, that somehow that, that can make an entire day fun just to, <laughs> to you know, and then to say, yeah, I was thinking that too. And so making sure you're not shut down, you've developed your social circle 
outside of playing even that's it's going to be huge and only more so as you get older i think well i remember talking to my grandpa who was in the philadelphia orchestra back you know 40s through the 60s and um yeah the musical stories always seem to morph into the personal stories you know he he rarely would dwell on this or that piece or musical moment. It was always, you know, what someone did on the break or what someone did on the train or. Well, they had so much more togetherness than what? we ever, you know, yeah. the nine week tour, nine week tours. Yeah. You know, where they'd sleep on the train, they get one shower a week. Like, can you imagine? Yeah. You I mean, that, that was real a... comfortable with your colleagues. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And so then it was, and you know, and that, that, that orchestra was a real musical machine too, but you really, I mean, you had to get along with the people you were around or you were just sunk. I mean, you couldn't even function. So, yeah, friendships like you say. Well, here are some um, quicker, we, we can do these pretty quickly, I think. How often do you change strings and rehear your bow? You know, for me, it's probably changing strings every three or four months and maybe about the same for rehearing the bow. <laughs> what? It's like, it's like the Seinfeld when it's like Kramer who asks Jerry how often he cuts his toenails. <laughs> say, I don't remember says, this. I'd say every two to eight weeks. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel. It's like, well, I, yeah. I mean, I don't really know. It's just kind Those of strings. Can I, can I tell everyone that I change your strings? Yes. I think pretty much everyone knows that you carry my violin. <laughs> Change my strings. You don't tune my violin. No. I, I still do that. So. <laughs> now, Lily asks, how can you get a solid tone even in oh, office? Wait, wait, wait. No, I feel bad. I just feel like oh. I got a very flippant answer to that. Okay. Well, so let, let's have some real honest, numbers. That's a good question. I mean, it's, you know. Why? Well, I, I gave my answer, so. So, what did you say? I said strings every three to four months and rehears about the same. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> That's about right. Yeah. I mean, I think by strings, it's like when I start noticing that like a play a four note chord and it seems to dip. It's like the Doppler effect. Once I lift my bow from the string, then it's time to change your strings. Yeah. So, that's like a false, a false string. Yeah. Then it's, you know, that string is done. And- we talked about the fact I've never I've never had a string break on me in concert. I mean that is nuts. I mean, we don't play that many concerts. I it's still I well, yeah, have that I mean a lot of the E strings that I've broken I'm sure have been because I hit the E string with the metal of the bow, which I know you, you still don't understand how that could ever happen, but it's definitely yeah, happened. Now it hasn't happened to me in I would say a good ten years. The string committed suicide. Yeah. <laughs> and the bow hair, you know, I do in an ideal world, if I could swing it, I would change my bow hair every two months. Yeah. Because I feel like the little teeth, and it depends on the quality of the hair, but I feel like the, the quality is not so great these days. So I think every eight weeks, it's like a haircut. I feel like I would, yeah. I think that's what they tell you about. You should get your haircut every eight weeks. And I don't know how many people actually do that. Probably men. But, I think businessmen, um, it's like every two weeks. Well, that's true. So, yeah, I, I would – the bow hair, I'm actually more concerned with than the string freshness because I feel like I've got enough intonation issues on my own that like the, <laughs> the, the falseness of my strings doesn't come into play as much as – but I feel like that I really – I like the grippy hair and it really bugs me when the little microscopic teeth start noticeably disappearing and then I then I have to rosin like, you know, twice a day or something. <laughs> Turning into slow moments. Yeah. I, mean, I, I think, you know, the quantity of rosin can make up for can make up for non-rehairing, but <laughs> it's depressing. Well, is that a good enough answer for Yeah, I'm I'm done with how often. Um I don't know if that counts as rapid fire, but Oh we'll, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I didn't realize this was the rapid fire. Well, part. I mean we'll we'll just do a couple more because right, mm-hmm. these are more violin related. Lily had asked how to get a solid tone even in off the string notes. You know, I, I think a lot of a lot of folks they may feel good when they're sustaining notes, but then as soon as they right. take take it off the string, the string doesn't seem to catch. Get your bow reheard. <laughs> um, you're the teacher. I mean, I would say probably 
just superficially you're you know you're working with bow angle hair angle like you know probably more hair would equal more sound yeah i i usually find that people's bows behave very differently on and off the string and so for you know for any off the string passage that you're trying to work on there there is an on string equivalent that you should try to find mm. and so if you for example it like you know last move in a Tchaikovsky concerto is a very aggressive if you were if someone said you have to play that on the string and you found what that stroke was you would notice how much bow you were using what the contact point is how into the string you are and all of that needs to stay the same when you take it off the string so same contact point same amount of bow and just, same yeah, depth. You're, you're a really good teacher. I into the that. Uh, well, but I mean, this question comes up all the time. So that's very interesting. I I have a whole thing about how there's no such thing as an off the string stroke, right? Isn't that one of my? What I almost feel like that goes along with. Yeah, what I think I'm maybe it's another you. way of saying what you're saying. But I think certain, like the velocity, will make it come off the string. But as you say, I think the basic elements remain the same, and it. Even like if you actually watched like a super slowed down video of someone's off the string stroke, I think I think personally I haven't done it, but you'd be surprised how little it actually comes off the string. There's not a lot of air, you know, yeah. a lot of distance from the string. I think that it's just more aural, a u r a l than <laughs> than visual. Yeah, I agree. I, I think there, there needs to be more connection to to the string usually. Yeah. And I think, you know, the the big problem, and we see it at a professional level all the time, people will sacrifice some basic elements of music making to take to getting a stroke off the string. I mean, it seems obvious if you just think about it, but it's like the the time taken, the rhythm, that, that all has to come first. And then the stroke, you know, whether it comes off is a different matter. Yeah. I mean, as you know, one time I played for Zuckerman, he reminded me there's only sound when the hair is on the string. So, well, I mean, <laughs> there may be ring after that, but basically you're, you're only making sound when there's contact with the string. So, better have a, a good reason for taking it off. He, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Two more and they're, they're very closely related. The first and neither one of these has, has a name, but do you usually divide and practice by sections when you're tackling a new piece? Are you organized in that way or is it more just I'm going to play through the piece and then just kind of work on it bit by bit? When was the last time you learned a new piece, Ewan? Well, you know, now I'm doing it all the time with the, the Violympics. I've right, got okay. a, a new challenge. So, you go for it and like how do you do it? Piece but... Well, it's kind of like the, right, this is like the whole Instagram culture, right, where everyone gets to present the idealized version of their lives and and all of that. The way I teach is, yeah, you divide things into sections and <laughs> figure out the difficulties and, you know, I think I'm like everybody else. I probably try to play a piece through and see what parts seem hard and what don't. I'm a little better than I used to be in recognizing, okay, like this whole section is stuff that I'm comfortable with, I'm familiar with. There are some annoyances in there, some things that aren't happening the way I want, but here's a section with some new challenges and some things I really have to work out before I can even begin the real process of getting it into performance shape. Yeah. So, but, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I, I wouldn't dream of trying to play through something repeatedly if there was like a a difficult passage right you know but i mean that is really the way we practiced as kids probably right i mean you just keep sort of ramming your yeah i don't remember i mean i of course you focus on the technical and then you know once you feel more comfortable with that you, you see if you can integrate it and then if you can acceptably then then you start doing it slowly right like you'll integrate it but you'll do it you'll play through it slowly so that your brain can get used to the idea of continuing, starting at that less hard part, continuing through the hard part, and then continuing past that. 
And are you fine now? I mean, like if every section of a piece doesn't have the same tempo in practice, are you fine with that? Or like, do you have to? I don't know that. I I do it, but I find that playing under tempo always has benefits. So, right, because the next question is basically is the best way to learn a piece just to get it all to one tempo and then put the metronome up a little bit I see. and get Completely it faster. I see. the entire thing the same. Um, or, you know, do you basically, do you treat each section independently? No, I think that there are parts that you will feel comfortable playing at tempo always. I'm not sure you should mess around with that too much. And the parts that you don't feel comfortable, you should have, you know, margin on either side of the passages you find difficult and make, make sure that you work those up. But I don't see any need to include all the parts that you're already comfortable with to play those at a tempo. Because I think that if you're doing, if you do the parts that you're already okay with and under tempo repeatedly, maybe start ironing in strange habits that you wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think so too. You know, so I think focus on the parts that are causing trouble and the parts immediately before that. So it's like a, there's a physical element to it. It's almost like a, like a long jump or something. <laughs> you know, you want to envision everything going up to the the part that's hard, and part of that is just getting super comfortable with the setup to the hard part. But I don't see any need to. The entire piece doesn't have to be worked at at that pace. And you know, I think a. The second part of that person's question was for the parts that are a problem and they, let's say they're slow at the moment, how do you get them faster? Basically, the question was, is it always just a matter of putting in the repetitions, getting it a little faster, a little faster? Is that the the long and short of it or are there tricks you can use to circumvent that? Well, it's like Homer when he's trying to... You mean the Simpson Homer? Yeah, Homer Simpson when he's trying to figure out how to make more money <laughs> at the bowling alley, and he he like buys a textbook on like advanced economics or something, and then you see him <laughs> in each scene. He's he quickly cuts to him downgrading. He's like then it's like basic economics, and then it's like dictionary. <laughs> he's looking up the word. Economics. I always feel like that. It's like I'm like oh, I'm gonna tackle this. It's like oh, I better figure out how to play. You know, thirds. It's like oh, I better just play. Like a scale in this key. <laughs> like, there is some downgrading that will happen if you can't get it within. For me, if I've, I'm really sensing it's not, it's not getting any better after X number of repetitions. Clearly, I have to go down to the next more basic rung. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a smarter way because you could just sort of mindlessly put the metronome up and. You know, and I never then- use a metronome when I practice. Do you? Rarely. I, I will Should use we, it. I mean, is it bad? I'd... Well, I just, I'm like you. I, I don't, I find it helpful to check the seams between sections. Interesting. Um, I even don't, you know, I, and I think, um, and for auditions. Sure. It's more useful because like, yeah, for auditions definitely because, you know, the steadiness is an issue, but I haven't used one in a while. No, I think. Yeah, I, I'll use them to keep a record kind of of where I am, but mm-hmm. I'm sort of militant, you know, I'm kind of against just turning on the metronome and leaving it on for very long, so. You've always, um, I mean, I remember that. But. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole idea of working things up and the, and the reason is that unless you solve some underlying problem, you're always going to hit a wall. So, like something like, you know, feels okay at 62 and you want to get it to 80, Mm-hmm. And it just like you can't get it past 62. There's some reason for that, you know. So, just yeah. setting it to 64 and trying to play it over and over again is not really, that's not solving the problem. I think you just really have to target what the problem is. You know, it's funny. So, I've been trying to talk about basic, but I've been trying to work up the E major preludio. Not basic. It's hard. It's a hard You movement. know, E major is a hard key and it's a tough movement to get and... Today I was thinking, you know, it's just just giving me a really hard time and I realized I was playing it just a couple clicks faster than usual and those couple clicks were causing the problem. You know, it was like I, even that small percentage of increase 
was making everything a lot less accurate. So sure, I think that, you know, working with the metronome is not a bad idea and can give you a more concrete idea of why things aren't feeling right. But again, just as a check, so like you can write that number down and and know kind of where you stand, but you wouldn't just put it on and keep it on. It depends, like I said, for orchestral excerpt, sure, maybe, you know, for something like solo Bach, no, (laughs) I'd find that stultifying. Okay, so we agree you you try to figure out what the problem is. If you can't figure out what the problem is, then that's, you need some outside help. You need another ear. Because if you can't figure that out, then you're sort of just left with, you know. You just got to figure it out. I think (laughs) think you have to play it slowly enough that you understand. And you do this, you have this whole exercise with visualization. And I always thought it was kind of a strange way to go about it. But you're right. It's like if you... Imagine you're playing it, something strange happens, like your violin flies out of your hands. That happens, you know, when you're practicing, you realize that something strange is happening there. It may not be, you know, if you're actually holding your violin, you're not going to imagine that your violin's flying out of your hands. But I, I feel an insecurity if you actually think about it. It's like tapping on the wall and hearing something, you know, something that indicates some kind of structural flaw, that's what's happening. Like you have to really tap on the walls and find this is, this is the problem. Right. House hasn't collapsed yet, but you hear that hollow sound and you're like, oh, yeah, that's that's bad news. It's black mold. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like I, I do that a lot because, you know, I sense like, hey, this is, this finger is going down, even though it's technically going down in the right place at the right time, it's not securely doing that. You know, and recognizing the difference between it happening fortuitously and purposefully, you know, that's the difference, I think, between feeling insecure and secure about the performance. Yeah. I think where we're going to go from here is uh, in the next few episodes, we're going to take uh, questions from our Violympics group because those people with me in the Violympics are going through six events, each with its own challenge piece. And there are lots of great questions that that we just don't always have time to get through in the group. And you and I can answer them here because everybody's interested in your perspective too. They hear way too much from me. So, that's where we're going to go in the next few episodes. So, if you're up for that, I'll be quizzing you about our challenge pieces. And Oh, I've always full of opinions. <laughs> that's what That's what we want. All right. So, thanks so much for joining us here and I will look forward to your your questions. If you're in the Violympics group, keep those questions coming. And if you're not, then hopefully you can join the next time around and we will come back at you with more Q&As next time on Stand Partners for Life. <laughs>